in your Bibles to the book of Joshua tonight. Joshua chapter 6, and if you need a Bible to follow along with us in our study, just lift up your hands and the ushers will bring a Bible to you so you can uh, follow with us. If I were to ask you, what is the shape of the color yellow, you would say, you're setting us up for a sermon, aren't you? It is true that colors have physical properties. However, those properties are impossible to define unless we attach them to another physical object that we can also describe. If I ask you the question, what does faith look like? It should arise in your hearts a similar type of sentiment. Because although the Bible tells us that faith does have substance, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of invisible things. Faith does have substance. Unless we attach it to something else, it's impossible for us to really understand and describe what it is. How do you describe or comprehend faith? Now, it's important that we do for a couple of reasons. First of all, because it's a concept that's so prevalent in the pages of Scripture. You can't separate faith from the Christian life. It's the root and foundation of what we are, of our relationship with God. And so we have to understand faith because we're Christians. It's also important for us to understand faith so that we don't misuse the word and associate something else that isn't faith with faith. And and, and third of all, here in this uh, understanding of faith, I don't think we could choose a better passage of Scripture, a better chapter, than Joshua chapter 6 and the Battle of Jericho as an example for us, a physical story that we can look at to understand exactly what faith is. Now, the scene that we have before us as we come to chapter 6 is that the children of Israel are now crossed into the promised land. Behind them is their past, their bondage and slavery in Egypt, their years of wandering in the wilderness, the leadership of Moses who had been with them for so long. Their present is that their heart is set right with God. Their eyes are up towards heaven and they're looking to him for their direction, for their instruction and where they're to go. And they have Joshua as their leader, a man who's been equipped and prepared and called by God to lead them in the conquest of the promised land that they are about to obtain and overtake. Their future is that looming before them are the towering double walls of the city of Jericho called by historians an impenetrable city. It was probably what scared the 12 witnesses 40 years previously into coming back and putting fear into the hearts of God's people that we can't take that land. It's too strong for us. The walls are too high. The cities are fortified and the men are mighty. And that's the circumstance that they find themselves in. Now in the promised land, the walls of Jericho are before them. It's a double-walled, fortified, well-equipped city. And if you were in the celestial audience looking down at that scene from above, you would see Jericho sealed off 
But then you would see the children of Israel encamped around it. A weakened, homeless, poorly armed, half-organized congregation of people with a God-given call to conquer and besiege the city. And so the question that you would have and the question that we have is how is a homeless, poorly armed, half-organized congregation of people going to besiege and destroy a double-walled, fortified, well-equipped city? And the Bible gives us an answer in one word, and that answer is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30, and it reads this. It says, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. The one word answer to that question of how the Israelites are going to obtain victory over this city of Jericho is by faith. So what can we learn from Joshua chapter 6 to understand exactly what faith is and then to apply it to our lives as God's people in this day in which we live? So you're in Joshua chapter 6. We begin in verse 1. We read, Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. Now, when you look at that first verse there and you see those words at the beginning, it says, Now Jericho was securely shut up. Those words, securely shut up, in the Hebrew language, it's a repetition of the same word. And what it literally says in the Hebrew is that the city was shut up, shut up. That's what, that's what that says in the Hebrew language, and it's emphatic. It's like when the Bible says, in blessing, I will bless you, or in multiplying, I will multiply you. Literally, it means being shut up, it was shut up. That is that the city was so sealed off that it looked as though it were a ghost town. There were none that were coming out, none going in. There was no emissaries coming out, making propositions of peace. And there was none of the children of Israel going in, negotiating concerning the conditions of what was yet to be. It was completely and securely closed off. Jericho had their heels dug in. They weren't moving. And the children of Israel were outside waiting. They weren't moving. And that was the situation. And it's in that, with that scene of these two opposing parties, that we read verse 2. It says this. It says, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand its king and the mighty man, or mighty men of valor. And if you're taking notes tonight, our first uh, point in this understanding of what exactly is faith, it is this, is that faith sees the invisible. Faith sees the invisible. We read right here in the text that the city was securely shut up, that it was an absolutely closed door. There was none going out, none coming in. It was completely impenetrable. There was no weakness, no vulnerability, and no action, nothing happening at all. The scene looked completely at a standstill. And it was in that time that the Lord looked at Joshua and he said, See, I have given you the city. Now there's two different lenses through which you can view this situation. The first is the lens of the outward or the lens of the physical. You would say, well, through that lens, the conventional wisdom in this situation is that the odds are definitely not in our favor. 
I don't see that, Lord, that you're giving the city into our hand because from this vantage point, it looks like that city is an impenetrable force. Strategically speaking, we have no tools, no weapons. We don't have battering rams, catapults, ladders, or any of the things that you would need in order to take a city like that. We don't even have bows and arrows if we were to shoot down people on the walls. All we are are poorly armed soldiers in front of a closed city with no visible means of progress. And our conclusion is that this is an absolutely closed door. Lord, we cannot see how you're leading us in this situation. That's the lens of the physical, the outward. But if you add the lens of faith and you look at it through the eyes of faith, you see a completely different picture being painted. The previous list of circumstances becomes completely irrelevant in just a canvas upon which you paint the other real set of circumstances. And those are these. Is that God promised that they would take the city and be victorious. God promised them that none of their enemies would be able to stand before them. God had demonstrated to them through their history that absolutely nothing was impossible to them. And they had also experienced that God always stands behind his word. Now, those are two very contradictory sets of circumstances between the physical lens of seeing what it looked like outwardly and the lens of faith that looked at everything through the context of God's promises and what he's spoken and what he's able to do. Now, the first list, the physical, the outward lens of looking at things, That list would be defined as something that's very visible and seemingly very real. The other list that comes through the lens of faith, those circumstances, those are very invisible, idealistic, and irrational. To think that something invisible in an unconventional way is just going to happen, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't work out. It doesn't flesh out in our minds. Now, without faith, you are destined to lean upon the first set of those circumstances. You have no other choice but to see things through the outward. You can't rely upon faith. You must rely upon force. And if you're going to rely upon force, then the outcome of that battle, of that encounter, the engaging of Jericho, is dependent upon man's abilities, man's strategies, and the outcome is left open to chance. The result of that, inevitably, in the heart of those in the battle is going to be doubt, fear, trepidation, anxiety, stress, and defeat. Now, with faith, if you add faith to that circumstance in the heart of God's people, then you don't see the first set of uh, of restrictions, and the outcome is dependent upon what God said and upon God's ability to bring the outcome to pass, And the results are up to him. And what happens in your heart, if you have faith in that circumstance, is that you have confidence, assurance, boldness, you're fearless, and you obtain victory. Now, we face this circumstance in our own lives every day as people that live in this world. We have the choice whether or not we want to look at our lives and the things that we encounter in our lives through the lens of the physical, outward, visible realm or through the spiritual, invisible realm of faith, God's promise, and of God's word. In the world, 
the deck is stacked completely against you and I. We are, in this world, the homeless, poorly armed, half-organized congregation. Everything is, in this system, made to be in opposition to us. Economically speaking, politically, vocationally, educationally, our advancement towards living what we would consider what the Bible calls the abundant life, to get to those places, the obstacles that stand before us are huge and they're very real things. You can't live that kind of life. You can't get to that place. You cannot achieve that goal unless you have the right education. You've been equipped with the proper tools. You have the right connections. You have your paperwork all in a row. You have good looks. You know how to work the system. You have the ability to manipulate and make things happen. And out there, it's a dog-eat-dog thing, and only the strong survive. Good luck, and I hope you do well. And that's what you rely upon if all you operate in is the physical realm. And when you look at life that way, you live with the outlook of doubt, of fear, of trepidation, anxiety, distress, and defeat. Now, what does God say to his people about the life that he desires to give to us? He says to us that he's going to give to us an abundant life. He says that he set before us an open door. He promises that he'll order our steps. That he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up, how much more will he not now freely give us all things? He says that no weapon that's formed against us will prosper. That he's able to fix what's broken, restore what's been lost, rebuild and revive our lives. Now you and I have a choice every day that we live. We can either live according to what is seen and what is known according to the world system, or we can choose to live according to what God has said. And if we do that, then we live with eyes of faith and it enables us to see the invisible. Faith chooses what God says rather than what is seen or what the world tells us is the way things are. No matter how high or how strong the walls are, nothing can stand before God's omnipotence. And he says he's given us the victory. God give us eyes of faith. Now, Joshua had those eyes of faith. He was able to see the invisible. He was able to see things through the lens of God's word rather than the way they looked outwardly. But that was only the first step. He also had to move on to the second. And that we find as we look there in verse uh, 3. We read this. He says, God says, To Joshua, he says, you shall march around the city. All you men of war, you shall go around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Before, or But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horns. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight before him. Now, the second thing of faith, mark of faith, that we learn from this account in Joshua 6 and for your notes is that faith also hears the unreasonable. Remember that there was no chapter breaks when they 
you know, put the Bible together for you and I, Joshua didn't write this account and say, now, chapter 6. It was a continual narrative. You recall at the end of the last chapter, Joshua was having a face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ, the captain of the host of the Lord. He was standing there with his sword drawn, and Joshua asked him for instructions on how they were to conquer the city. And these are the instructions that the Lord now gives to him. It's a very unconventional battle plan. It doesn't make any sense at all. You would never hear them teaching this at West Point or at the Air Force Academy or in any of the places where, you know, military strategy is discussed, analyzed, where historical battles are looked at. You would never hear this battle plan given. Here's what you're to do, Joshua. You're to take the ark and the priests and two companies of soldiers. One is to go before the ark and one's to follow after and you're to march around the city of Jericho. They figured that that was about a nine-acre plot of land. It would take a, a, a group of people maybe a half an hour to an hour to accomplish that task, to make a lap around the city. And so you're to do that once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, you're to do the same thing, but do it seven times. And when the priests blow the horns, let the people shout with a great shout, and he says, what will happen is that the walls of the city will fall down miraculously. That is a very unconventional plan. But faith can hear things that are unreasonable and not be shaken by it. Now, Joshua has no problem with this battle plan whatsoever. He's standing before Jesus himself. I think just by the way the Lord spoke to him, it was absolute assurance that he knew who he was talking to. If this man was from Jericho, how would he know what the ark was or who the priests were or that they had trumpets and that there was a rear guard and a foreguard? This is the Lord that I'm hearing from. And so Joshua, having just crossed the Jordan River, had no problem with the instructions that he had just received. But he has a problem. Because now he has to take that battle plan back to his generals and his admirals and the footmen that are going to have to carry out this plan. And when they ask him and say, what is the plan? How are we going to take the city? He has to say, all right, guys, this is what we're going to do. And he has to trust that they're going to be with him. Now, they just crossed the Jordan River and the people watched the water scale back for Joshua just a couple of days ago. So they don't give him any kickback. They don't give him any problems. But this is for sure an unconventional plan. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's impossible for man to ever figure out or calculate how God is going to bring a given outcome to pass. If we could figure it out, then that would make God a lot smaller than he actually is. If God's ways could fit into my intellect, then that would make God smaller than me. Why would I want to worship a God who's smaller than me? And he declares to you and I that we would know, he says, my ways are not your ways, nor are my thoughts your thoughts. But as high as the heavens are above the earth, an immeasurable distance, that's how high my thoughts and my ways are above your ways, and they are beyond finding out. It's impossible for us to know how God's going to do things. Now, we have two choices as it pertains to our lives and our destiny. 
We can either do it our way, which is very reasonable to us. It makes a lot of sense in our calculations. Or we can surrender to God and we can do it God's way. Now, if we do it our way, then we're limited to the restrictions that we possess being finite, imperfect human beings. But if we do it God's way, then we're guaranteed victory and to have the outcome that he desires and that we also would desire. But here's the catch on that, is that it's not going to happen the way that you expect or the way that you would figure or even maybe the way that you would hope. I think of my path into the ministry. I've shared with you before how when I got saved, I still had this deep hatred for Christians. It was quite a paradox because here I was one and yet I couldn't stand them. You know, and that's kind of awkward. And it doesn't last long, you know, because you kind of, you know, you change. The Lord changes you and you become a new creation in Christ. But I remember I went to my pastor after being saved for not a long time. And I had absolutely no direction for my life at all. I was 19 years old. I was going to college, but for nothing. No, no destiny, not, nothing, nothing at all. And I said to him, I said, you know, I'm really struggling with this thing because I really still don't like Christians. I said that to him. I said, but I know I'm not going back to the world. Maybe I should go to Bible college. You know, and I was serious. You know, I was like, you know, I'm going in feet first. I'm not excited about it right now, but I'm doing it. I'm not going back, you know, and that was kind of where I was at at the time. And he sat me down and and I love what he said to me. It it turned out to be priceless counsel. He, He basically said, you have two choices. He says, you can get into the ministry the conventional way. He said, you could go to seminary or go to Bible college and you, you'll learn the Bible and you could get degrees and credentials and papers and write doctorates and thesis and then apply and get in the circuit and work. He said, you could do all that. He said, or he said, you could just learn the Bible, learn a trade and learn how to play the guitar. He said, I'd recommend the second. And, and, and I, so I took that counsel home and I prayed about it. And, and, and that was the thing that the Lord said, that's my counsel. That is, that is what you're to do. Learn my word. Immerse yourself in it. Study it. Love it. Drink it in. Listen as much as you can. Just love my word and learn a trade. Learn how to do something productive that you can take with you somewhere you would go and feed your family when necessary and if necessary. And learn how to play the guitar so that you can lead worship and, you know, and do those. And so I did that. I did it. And, 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 you know, can I tell you something? It was such an unconventional way. And there were years along the thing that I cursed that counsel. I said, ah, ah, why did I listen to that, you know, and the whole thing. But now I say, wow, Lord, thank you for that. Because the things that I was able to experience by doing it that way were things that I never would have been able to experience being insulated in kind of the, you know, the vortex that brings you from point A to point B in that context, you know. So I say, thank you, Lord, because it wasn't my way. It wasn't the way I would have done things. I never could have mapped that out for myself. And that's the way it always is in the things of God. There's our way, our prescribed way, or the world's way, the way the world tells us that things are accomplished and things are done. But then there's God's way. And his ways are past finding out, past figuring out. But they're so much more effective and so much more fulfilling than the world's ways. Listen, Christian. The advice that you need 
for the steps that you take as you move from here to heaven and as God gives you more and more territory in his promised land. That advice is not going to come from books you read. It's not going to come from uh, things that you think of or mind maps that you make as you strategize. Not even from counsel necessarily that you receive, even from spiritual people. It's going to come from the Lord. As you submit your lives to him, as you continually commit your path and your ways to him, the Bible says that he will lead you. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. And he will. But you have to be willing to listen to the unreasonable. So you see the invisible, willing to hear the unreasonable, but then number three in verse six, the third ingredient in this concept of faith as we know it is that he was willing to obey the word that he heard. Verse six, it says, Then Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard came after the ark while the priests continued blowing the trumpets now joshua had commanded the people saying you shall not shout or make any noise with your voice nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day i say unto you shout then you shall shout so he had the ark of the lord circle the city going around at once then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp and joshua rose early in the morning and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. Then seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets and the armed men went before them. But the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. So Joshua carefully and specifically keeps the instructions that the Lord gave to him. And it goes the extra mile of explaining that by repeating both days procedure to us there in those verses. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me about raising kids is that I find myself saying things to my kids that my parents said to me. And maybe you can relate to that. You know, it's one of those things that you used to roll your eyes when you heard it from them. But now you say it to your kids and you hear yourself saying, you go, oh, wow, they were right. You know, one of the things that I say to my kids all the time when talking about different things, as I say, you might not understand this now, but someday you're going to thank me for it. That's what I say. That's what my parents said to me, and that's what I say to them. I say, you may not understand this now, but someday you're going to thank me for it. Well, let me say something to you that you might not understand now, but someday, if you don't already, you will agree with me, and that is this. The most valuable possession you have, and in fact, the most valuable possession that exists on the earth, period, 
is the Bible that you have in your possession or the Bible that you own. That is the most valuable thing that you have. The reason for that is that it is filled with the word of the promises, the provisions, and the blessings of God that he has appropriated and guaranteed to bestow upon those that would believe and obtain those promises, provisions, and blessings. And that makes it very rich. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that it is profitable, you know, for, and then it goes on the thing. But basically, the idea is that the scripture is God-breathed. This is God's word. This isn't man's opinion about what God says. It's not the body of collected Christian writings that give us a concept of the Christian God. But the Bible is the very word that God has spoken out of his own mouth. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. It's eternal. It lasts forever. The writer of Hebrews said in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and that it accomplishes the thing that it's set forth to accomplish. It's the most valuable treasured thing that we have. It's full of all his promises. And God, listen, he is very concerned for his reputation. And when you stand upon his word, he always comes through. Now, our part to play in realizing the blessing of what the Bible is to us and what it has for us. Our part in that is that we are called to be obedient. We must be obedient to do the things that he says and order our lives in the way that he tells us where to order our lives that we might be partakers of the blessings that he's bestowed to us through the Bible. It's a very important point. Now listen to me carefully on this. Because as it concerns this study of faith and our understanding of faith, It's important that we never detach faith from the word of God. You cannot separate faith from the word of God. And if you do, you're in a very dangerous place. And here's why. Because oftentimes what we're called to do or called to embrace by faith is, first of all, invisible. And second of all, often unreasonable. It's invisible and it's unreasonable. And if you detach faith then from the word of God, then it allows you then to justify all sorts of crazy behavior and all sorts of crazy things and then to put the broad blanket label of faith on it and justify what it is that you're doing. And here's what that might look like. You have a very strong desire in your flesh to be with a person that is an unbeliever in the Lord. And there is a draw. You, you want it so bad just to be with that person. And you want them to be saved. And you even believe that they're going to get saved, but they're not saved. And so you'll venture into this arena of missionary dating. That is that I am, I'm dating this person, I'm courting this person, I'm seeing this person, and I'm hoping that this person is going to come into the faith, that I'm going to be able to kind of bring them into the Christian life because they, now they like me and I like God, and so now because they like me, they're going to like God, and this whole thing is going to work, and we're calling it faith. That I just believe by faith that this thing is going to work out. Well, no, you're not walking in faith because God says not to do that. It's not faith, it's disobedience because God said not to do it that way. You might have a thing where you 
continually, excessively spend more money than you make. And it's not, you know, because you're just trying to make ends meet, but you go out and you just purchase things, you acquire things, and you find yourself sinking deeper and deeper into debt through the things that you're acquiring, but you're going to put the label of faith upon it and say, well, I'm just trusting God that he's going to provide that when it's time that the bill comes due, the money's just going to be there. But the Bible doesn't call that faith. The Bible calls that presumption. And we're not allowed to take something that God's told us not to do, which is to put ourselves in an indebted situation like that, and then couple it with something that's noble like faith and justify it and say that it's of the Lord. Sometimes people aren't content to stay in one place. They love to move around. They just cannot plant roots anywhere and become stable and they embrace this kind of wanderlust type of uh, activity in their life and they just go from place to place to place and they never let roots go down they never let themselves get established anywhere but what they'll do is then they'll just attach that to the word faith and they'll say well i'm just walking by faith i'm living by faith but there's no stability there's no structure it's really if i'm honest with myself i'm just not a contented person i move around and i can't be stable anywhere to be willfully unemployed now i'm not talking about not willfully that's real that's an issue you know we face that that happens i'm talking about when you're willfully unemployed you can live at home and no one's ever gonna hold you accountable for that or you can live off of the system and and so you could work but you don't want to work because you don't like the conditions of that work but when people ask you what's going on, you just say, oh, this is kind of just my faith journey. I'm just, I'm kind of living by faith right now. I'm waiting for God to, to open the door and I know that he's going to. Well, listen, no, that's not what that is. That's just irresponsibility, you see. And there's a lot of things that people do and, and they attach it to faith and then they justify it. They say, well, I'm doing this, but I'm, it's, I'm doing it in faith and so therefore it's okay. Listen, when you detach faith from what God said in his word, it's not faith. Faith is standing upon what God said. He said, he gave us certain promises. He promises that he's going to lead our steps, that he's going to prosper us, that he's going to advance us, that he's going to do these things. But it's our responsibility to be obedient to what it is that he's called us to do. And so therefore, our faith must be kept in check by the word of God. And we see that happening in Joshua's life in this example in chapter 6 is that God has given him something to do, and now he's being obedient to it, and now he's hoping that the outcome is going to be the right thing because he's doing what God has called him to do. And so faith must be obedient to the word of God. Notice also, and it's tucked into those verses that we just read, is that faith remains quiet while it waits. They were instructed in that passage there that they were not to make any noise at all while they were walking around those walls. They weren't to shout. There wasn't to be a battle cry during those six days where once a day they would go around. They were to be perfectly still with their voice and perfectly silent. The only sound that was to be heard was the the sound of the priests blowing the trumpet. And they had to repeat that process for six days. Now that's a long time to wait while doing such a very small task. I mean, what did they do for the other 23 hours of those days? I wonder if at any point during that week, some of the subordinates of Joshua, the people that were under him, started to doubt at all and think, my goodness, did the Lord really 
give Joshua this plan? I mean, we accepted it when he said it, but this, I mean, day four, we're just sitting. This is a lot of waiting. I wonder if the Amorites, the inhabitants of Jericho, I wonder if they, peering through the cracks in the wall, looking out at the children of Israel, if they thought at all at any time, these people don't even have a plan. They're just walking around the city. I wonder if there was any anxiety in the heart of God's people or excitement in the heart of their enemies because of the interim between the promise and the desired outcome. It's a long time to wait. Sometimes the waiting period for us, while you and I are waiting on the Lord for a particular thing or in a particular circumstance or as we're waiting for a particular outcome or a promise that he's given, whatever it is, in whatever context of life we find ourselves, sometimes that time is immense. And and that's when faith can get difficult. Because we find ourselves doing an unreasonable thing in an unconventional way, waiting while nothing is happening. And and here's the, the other factor, is that all eyes are on us. You ever have that? You're waiting on the Lord. And you've testified, no, the Lord's going to come through. I know he's going to come through. And meanwhile, everybody else in your life is kind of sitting back and watching to see how it's going to work. And week after week goes by as you wait for the Lord to come through. And, 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 and you are called to be quiet, to not complain, to not clamor, to not backpedal, to not be bitter, to not, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but, but just calmly, quietly wait for the Lord to do his thing and see how he's going to come through. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15 says this. It says that in quietness and in confidence, you shall be saved and shall be your rest. That that is the way that we are called to conduct ourselves while we are waiting on the Lord to do what he's promised he's going to do. We're not to complain. We're not to, uh, you know, get anxious and all of that. We're to just quietly wait for the Lord to do it. And we see that here in the text. If you're in a season of waiting or a season of preparation or seeking the Lord, don't grow impatient and complaining. Just wait quietly and continue to believe God. You say, why? Here's why. Because faith, number five, obtains the impossible. Notice in verse 15. It says, but it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and they marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only, they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time, it happened. And the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord and shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So just prior to the breakthrough, the final instructions come from Joshua. They are save Rahab, the one who preserved the spies. And number two, no victory spoils in this one, guys. 
All of the spoils from this battle belong to the Lord. All of the gold, the silver, everything of any intrinsic value at all is to be brought into the treasury of the Lord. And if you take it, comes the warning, you'll bring a curse upon yourselves and a curse upon Israel. Remember that because it's going to be important in the next chapter. But then in verse 20, it says, So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. But Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord, And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Circle the words there that you see in verse 20 in your Bible where it says, and it happened. Because those are the key words in illustrating what faith produces in the life of God's people. And it happened. The thing that was impossible by human standards, contrary to all conventional wisdom, unprecedented in human history, and the thing that scoffers would laugh at and say it would never happen, it happened. It says that the walls fell down flat. And that's emphatic. It means that they didn't just crumble in part. There wasn't just a penetration where they would go through, but there was a supernatural act of God in removing all structure from these walls whatsoever except the one spot on that circumference where Rahab's house stood. We read that that was on the wall. The one place where the scarlet cord was bound and hanging to identify where she was, that part of the wall stood, but the rest of it fell down completely flat, God did what he said he was going to do. And listen, church, every promise that is given to you and I as the children of God, as it concerns us and the promised land that God has given to us, it's going to happen. That thing that you're waiting on the Lord for, or the victory that you're hoping will come through, or the promise that you're waiting to have fulfilled, you continue to believe God. Continue to see the invisible. And hear the unconventional plan. And walk in stillness and wait in confidence. And God's going to bring through the thing that he has promised. The thing that he said that he will do. And for some of you, maybe that's the whole reason why God brought you here tonight. Is just to hear that word. That that's a word from the Lord to you. You're waiting. You've been patient. You've been hopeful. And he's going to come through for you. He doesn't abandon any of his children, and he never leaves anything undone. He crosses every T, he dots every I, and not even one hair falls to the ground from one of his kids without him knowing it altogether. And he's going to come through for you. 
Notice that the walls of Jericho fell. It's supernatural. You don't have to wait until all of the natural courses of things line up and all of the ducks are in a row for things to come through for you. When it's God's time, it's going to happen. And nothing's going to stop it from happening. We said in a study a couple of weeks ago that there's a time for every purpose under heaven. And the great struggle of the Christian life is waiting for time and purpose to meet. (laughs) We have a purpose. We know that there's a plan. There's something happening, but the time is not yet. And so we're frustrated. We're anxious. We're waiting. But when purpose and time come together, you cannot stop the promises of God from coming to pass in your life. And that's what we see happening here. The wall fell down. There's another angle, though, in this this falling of the wall that we need to understand that is worthy of consideration. And, And that is this. Listen carefully. The thing that the world trusts in the most for its security and its defenses cannot hold up against what God is ultimately going to do. He's The thing that they trusted in, the people of Jericho, ultimately turned out to be their ruin. What is it that people trust in when they're not trusting in the true and the living God? Do they trust in money? The money's going to fail. It's not going to work. You say, it's going to work for me because I've got all my money in gold. And so because I've got my money in gold, yeah, it's going to fail, but I'm going to be okay because I've got a hedge against hyperinflation or against the failing of currency. No, no, listen. James says that your gold and your silver are cankered and moth-eaten. That's going to be insignificant where this world is headed. It's not going to save you. Some people put their trust in their job. Well, I have a really good job, a tenured position. It's unexpendable. And my position is invaluable. I cannot be removed. Are you sure? 700 people at IBM last week or two weeks ago on the chopping block. That's the way the world is going right now. Now, that's okay that 700 people got chopped on the chopping block if their hope is in the Lord. Because our provision, our confidence doesn't come from the east or from the west. It comes from the Lord. And if a person is trusted in the Lord, then that doesn't shake them because their foundation isn't built upon where they stand in this world system. Their faith stands upon the rock. The promises he'll always provide. But if your trust is in your job, your confidence is that, listen, it's going to be your ruin because when it collapses, what are you going to do? Well, it's not just my job, it's my field. See, I chose a field that's on the cutting edge of where everything is going. And so there's always going to be, really? listen there's only one place on this universe where there is a solid foundation and solid place to put your feet and that is in the lord jesus christ heaven and earth will pass away jesus said but my word shall not pass away and anything that a man or a woman trusts in or hopes in or delights in that is not in the lord first is ultimately going to come to ruin the walls fell down Finally, faith, number six, gives God the glory. In verse 18 and also again in verse 24, twice they were told that they're not to touch the spoils. That the gold, the silver, the precious things were to be brought into the treasury of the Lord. And it is because the victory came from the Lord 
And the first fruits belong to the Lord. But for you and I, it's instruction that when God comes through in your life and mine as we walk by faith, the glory for the things that God does belongs to him, not to us. There are two modes of accomplishment in this world. There is self-will, which then must be aided with self-effort, which then, if it works, results in self-glory. I thought of it. I conjured up the plan, put forth the energy and did it, and now I get the glory and receive the accolades for what was accomplished. That's what force produces. But faith has a completely different angle. It's God's will. He thought of it. It's God's effort. He's the one that gave the power and the ability and brought the thing to pass. And so, therefore, God gets the glory. Joshua thought that he was going to have to make a plan, that he was going to have to use the force. God-given force, but his force nonetheless. But it didn't happen that way. He met Jesus at the outskirts of the city, and Jesus said, this isn't your plan, Joshua. I am the captain of the host of the Lord. And I'm going to battle against Jericho. This is my plan, and I'm going to conquer that city. Are you for me or against me? So it was his will. Now, if it's his will, then he's the one that has to give forth the effort. What did the children of Israel have to do in order to watch the walls of Jericho fall? Nothing. Believe. Walk around the city. They didn't throw a rock. They didn't have a catapult, a battering ram. Nothing. And God supernaturally flattened the wall. He did it completely. They did nothing. It was totally his effort. And they just went in and just cleaned up after God knocked down the walls. And the result of it is that God was to get the glory. And that is the way that God wants us to live our lives. That's what it looks like to walk by faith. Our lives are not to be conducted by our force, by our effort by our plans, our manipulations, our abilities, and what we do. Our plans are to be, God, what's your plan? The 60-second prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, in the first stanza, he said, when you pray, say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will, but your will be done. And when we fall in line with our lives behind what God has planned for our lives, then we fall into what he has planned, and therefore we get to rest in how he's going to do it. He'll make the walls fall down. He's going to bring it to pass, and then we're there to take the spoil, and we just give him the glory. We say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you did. It's not by force the way that we live as Christians, but we live by faith. Now, the scoffer is always going to be the scoffer. You know what I'm talking about. You know, I have scoffers in my life, people in my life that don't like the way I'm living because I'm a Christian. Do you have any of those or am I the only one? You know, oh, you're going to do it that way. It doesn't work that way. God helps those who help themselves. Listen, that's not in the Bible. (laughs) That's not a scripture. God helps those who come to him for help. That's the way it works. That's, you know, what the Bible teaches, you know. That's how God works, see? But we have scoffers in our life. Now, the scoffer is always going to be the scoffer. And here's what's going to happen in your life, because God's going to come through for you, and you're going to take territory. But the scoffer's going to come, and they're not going to say, wow, God really came through for you. I'm really ashamed. They're going to say, well, you were just lucky. The wall just fell down. You know, you didn't do anything. You had nothing to do with that. It just happened. It could have happened to anybody. You were in the right place at the right time. You know, you're, you're going to have those people. That's okay. Just let them go on scoffing, and you just go on enjoying what God is doing in your life. 
That's the blessing of what we enjoy. Well, the chapter closes in verses 26 and 27. It says, Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds the city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. Now, that actually came to pass. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34, a man set forth to rebuild Jericho, and the Bible gives the testimony that that is exactly what happened, that he laid the foundation in his firstborn, and he set up the gate, which would be the last thing in, in his, uh, his, his, uh, other, his uh, youngest there. So um, <clears throat> it happened. And it says, so the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. The two studies that are prior to this one that we've had the last two weeks have been studies that have basically given us instruction. Two weeks ago, we talked about how to be led of the Lord. And then last week, we talked about how to be prepared for victory, that the victory is won before the battle happens. Our Bible study tonight leaves us with a question. And the question is this. Do you live a life of true biblical faith? Or do you operate according to the rule of force? Where is your life founded upon? What is the walled city that you're facing right now? Every one of us has territory that's in front of us. Every one of us has a city that in some way is looking down at us saying, you're never going to get in here. You might take all kinds of other land, other things, but you're never going to get past this. Your family's never going to be whole. You're never going to have that close-knit thing that you, that you so long to have between you, you and your spouse and with your children and that, that you really love each other and that your home is a place. You're never going to have that. The enemy screams from his fortified wall as he looks at you. The city of financial instability, it, it, it taunts you as you see how strong it is and you say, man, we're, we're never going to get in there. There's, there's no way to ever get on top of the water. We're just always going to be under. Everything's always going to be in the red. It's always going to be just week to week and just eking it out. And, and we're never going to get to that place where, where, where it's just, ah. In that city, it's just looming over you. It's saying, you can't get in here. It's not going to work for you. Maybe there's a monumental goal, something that, that you, you just, a dream that's been in your heart since, since, maybe since you were a child. Maybe to have a child or to have a family or to have a spouse or to write or whatever it might be. And it just looks at you and says, it's never going to happen. Life is just too complicated. You're never going to get there. Whatever else, it might be a problem, an oppressive addiction or a great need that you have or whatever it is. But let me ask you this question in the context of whatever it is that's looking down at you and saying that you can't. Do you see it through the eyes of circumstance or do you see it through the eyes of faith? That's a closed door. It's just closed. It's securely shut up. There's no way that I'm ever going to have it. Would the Lord look at you and say, see? I've given you the city, its walls, its mighty men, everything that's in it. It's yours. I've given it to you. Are you able through the lens of faith to stand upon the promises of God and obtain the thing that he's given? Where are you turning to craft your plans? The conventional wisdom of the world? Or do you lay it before the Lord and say, Lord, your will be done. Whatever it is that you want to do in my life. Where is your life in terms of obedience to God's word? Are you doing what God's told you to do? 
Are you living according to the standard that he set forth in his word that he might be a blessing on your behalf? And are you patiently waiting or are you clamoring and complaining? The Bible says that nothing shall be impossible to him that believes. God has given us such a gift and that he's given us the privilege and the ability to stand upon his word and believe it. Now, alone, faith is intangible. It's unidentifiable and it's undefinable. But once it exists inside a person's heart and it's applied to a person's life, then these are the attributes that prove that it's there, the things that we see in Joshua chapter 6. Would the Lord find true faith if he looked into our hearts tonight? Father, we thank you so much for this word that you've given to us. We thank you for the challenge that it presents us, but also for the truth that it blesses us with. And I pray tonight, Father, for each person here. Lord, I ask that you would remove fear and replace it with faith. That you would give us the ability to see through eternal eyes. And that our feet wouldn't walk according to the wisdom of this world, but according to the word of God. And that we would find victory through the promises that you've given through the power of your spirit that you've given us to obtain these promises. And so tonight, Lord, we lay our lives at your feet. For some of us, Lord, we shed tears as we consider how long it is that we've been waiting and what we're hoping for. For some, we rejoice in the victory and the victories that you're giving to us. But Lord, we would ask that by the power of your love, you would fill us with such faith, such hope, such confidence, Lord, that you're for us and not against us. That you didn't spare your son and that you're freely going to give us all things. And that we would truly be that testimony to a lost and dying world that you're on the throne, that you're sovereign in our lives, and that you love us unconditionally. Lord, be with us. Help us. Strengthen us, Lord. Jesus' name. Let's all stand.